there are a lot of businesses out there. The days of businesses being conducted solely by people in suits with briefcases are long gone. Well, they still happen, but it's a lot more open now. These days, anyone can be a business owner. And these businesses exist not only in traditional corporate spaces, but in new virtual ones as well. The internet has changed the business sphere. There are more factors when it comes to the World Wide Web. With the internet comes more people. More people means more consumers. More consumers, more business, more product. At the end of the day, it can all be summed up in one way. In business, you have your buyers and your sellers. And sometimes it's the business itself that's being sold. Welcome to Deal Closers, a tech and internet M&A discussion. I'm your host, Randall Sylvie. On this show, we're going to talk about the business of buying businesses. So what do I mean by buying businesses? What I'm talking about are mergers and acquisitions. When company owners are ready to sell their company or transition in ownership, they seek help to make this transition as smooth and profitable as possible. There are a lot of different firms out there that help owners with these transactions. Websiteclosers.com is one of them. What sets this firm apart from others is their dedication to picking the best clients to take on. Well, the good news is, at least at our firm, we do a lot of diligence up front and we turn down about 80% of the deals that come to us. And the reason for that is that there's just a lot of bad deals out there. And we're not the kind of firm that wants to represent bad deals. There's a lot of other M&A firms and business brokers out there that can handle those. And, and we want to focus on the cream of the crop. That's Jason Garitas. I had the chance to chat with him and his colleague, Ron Matheson, about the ins and outs of what they do. We focused on the internet. The world of technology has expanded our methods of connectivity, and as a result, businesses can have massive online presences. So what are some common reasons you see for mergers or sales of companies in the internet and tech space? Well, as you can imagine, it varies considerably depending on you know the maturity of a business, what category they're in, what kind of business they are. You know, we deal with all different kinds of businesses that are in any way digital in form, whether it be software companies, and there's all different kinds of software companies, or maybe it's an e-commerce company. It could be, you know, a registrar, it could be a hosting company. There's just so many different kinds of companies that sort of operate within technology, within tech-enabled, and within internet that, you know, there could be a lot of different reasons why somebody might you know, be looking to exit the business and exit can look a lot of different ways as well. You might have somebody who wants to just kind of go out and sort of raise funds through a growth investment. Growth investments tend to be, you know, minority stakes in a business. They're just looking for someone to come in. They still want to have control, but they, they would like someone to come in with some experience that can, you know, either from a network standpoint or from their experience, or maybe they can help capitalize, you know, there's some things that they can do on the growth investment side to help them grow, and then they'll exit later down the road. That's a a small share of what we do. But the biggest lion's share is definitely the majority sale, either 100%, or you might have, you know, somebody who's going to uh, what we call roll equity or keep some of the business, and that can be 10%, 20 30%. And so you kind of start there, and that is, you know, what kind of exit do they want? And once you understand that, then you have to understand, well, what is it they want? Do they want to just kind of leave the business, or are they looking to stay with the business for the long term with the new owners? And so you kind of got to figure that out, too. That's that's a very important part of what we do with our clients is, you know, make sure that we understand what 
the demands are of our clients so that we can go out and find somebody to match you know their demands because not every buyer out there wants to make a growth investment not everyone wants to pay 100% and so it's definitely a matchmaking process for sure as it relates to what it is they're looking for in the exit process their firm handles many clients that shouldn't come as too much of a surprise there are a lot of websites out there and these days the internet is easily accessible E-commerce is a huge chunk of their clientele. Think about it. So many of us shop online. It seems like every week there's a new way to shop virtually. Purchasing anything from meals, toiletries, clothing, and more can easily be done with a strong Wi-Fi connection and the click of a button. So I asked Jason and Ron what sets one online business apart from another when it's time to sell. So say someone has decided to sell their tech or internet company. What are buyers looking for? What makes a company attractive to a potential buyer? There again, it depends on the type of business. We could use e-commerce as an example because we do represent a lot of e-commerce clients. There, a buyer is going to be looking for history. They're going to be looking at whether or not it's a business that can be financed. And that depends on the size of the business also. If it's less than $5 million, it's likely going to go the SBA route if it's financeable. If it's going to sell between 5 and $10 million, then it's going to be a different kind of buyer. And then over 10 million tends to be your small family offices and your private equity groups that are going to go to the capital markets to raise funds for the business. And so, you know, what it is they're looking for, is it financeable? If it is, then that's going to broaden the buyer pool and there's going to be a lot more buyers willing to, you know, get into those, into those businesses. Another thing a lot of people look at is reoccurring revenue. And that's a pretty important piece overall. And what we mean there is that is it the type, and and again, I'm just talking e-commerce right now, but is it the type of business where consumers are sticky? You know, are they, do they tend to stick to the particular product and the particular brand and continue to use it over time? And we call that a lifetime value. What is the lifetime value of a particular consumer as it relates to that? It can also be adjacently described in SaaS companies, you know, how sticky is the piece of software that the person's using? Do they stick with it for six months? Do they stick with it for six years? That's highly valuable to you know a particular buyer. And so that's one of the things they're going to be looking for in the business. Another thing that we always talk about when we present in the marketplace is uh, concentration. And you have to be really careful, no matter what business you have, in having too many eggs in one basket, because buyers will see that. And it will greatly impact the valuation of the company and the multiple that they're able to achieve because if there's a lot of concentration, that's a risk profile. And that means that they're going to be maybe still willing to buy the company, but they're going to take a lot of that risk and shove it on to the seller in the form of earnouts and notes and those kinds of things. And most likely for a high concentrated business, you're going to see a lower multiple because it just is a higher risk profile. So we work with clients on finding ways to reduce that concentration. You know, when people come to us, they're not always ready to sell right away. And we sort of help them with that process. And this process isn't easy. There are a lot of factors to consider when working in e-commerce, especially considering there are a lot of ways to sell on the web. How many Amazon packages show up at your door or your neighbor's door? A lot of the time, companies use other platforms and marketplaces to sell their products. We you know, certainly understand our clients really well, which is one of the reasons we wanted to put this podcast together in that we understand sort of the pain points. We also operate in this space. I have 18 companies in the tech space doing various things. A lot of it's e-commerce. 
And that helps me sort of understand all the pain points because I've woken up in the middle of the night having to deal with Amazon shutting down one of my ASINs. And, you know, I've dealt with having to deal with, you know, buying additional inventory when I'm on a 40% growth trend and, you know, how that cash flow constraint can impact you. You know, we understand those pain points and, and how clients are hurting. We understand the difference between cash flow and profit. And there are wide gaps of the two. And we kind of call that ghost profit because when you sell a company, you primarily do it on an accrual method. And for a high growth e-commerce company on an accrual method, there could be a massive difference between the true earnings or EBITDA of the company on accrual. And when you look at the actual cash flow of the company, because they're pumping all the money back into the company from their cash account to fund additional inventory for all that growth. And we understand all of that. When you build these transactions and the structure of the deal, that's where earnouts can be, you know, sort of helpful because, you know, you've got a high expectation for a seller, our client, but the problem is that, you know, there's not a whole lot of cash flow because you're on a high growth trend. And we have an example of that yesterday, you know, Ron and I had a call with a client. We're under contract. It's an SBA deal for about four and a half million. And in that scenario, we've got a company that's growing 65% right now, year over year. So between January and May, they grew 65% over the prior year. So what does that mean? Well, that means that not only do they have to fund additional inventory for future growth, they're funding all the inventory for the growth they've already had, and they've got things coming around the corner. You know, they're an Amazon company, so they've got Amazon Prime coming up. You know, here it is, middle of June. They've got Amazon Prime coming up in about three weeks. That's a massive day. You know, a company can do 50% of its normal full month sales in one day because of Prime Day. It's just, it's kind of like Black Friday. It's nuts. And speaking of that, you know, they have to get ready for that as well because you have to start buying to get ready for those things. So if you're in the middle of a transaction and you've got these things happening, you know, you have to be able to build a deal that makes sense for both sides. And Inevitably, we've only seen a few failures in this segment, but the times that we've seen the failures is because they're not paying enough attention to inventory. Inventory rules the roost for e-commerce companies, and, and Amazon has the ability to monitor what's going on with respect to inventory, and if they see shortcomings in inventory, they will start reducing rank of a product or an ASIN as it relates to the keywords used to search for it. And that's bad because then you lose, you know, bestseller tags, you lose other tags that they provide, you, you lose the opportunity in the algorithms to do deals, what they call lightning deals. And so there's a lot that goes into the inventory piece and that ends up being a big conversation on the e-commerce side. And the whole point is, again, we understand those pain points and we can help a client sort of work through them. So what if things go wrong? What makes a deal fall through? The tech world is a space with a lot of advantages, but is also in a constant state of change. How does that affect the selling of companies and what makes a bad deal? So because we're very selective in what we work with, we do not tend to have failures. But we have one that we know of out of about 1,200 that we've done, which is a pretty good ratio. I know of others that have been done, not through our firm. And from an e-commerce standpoint, certainly inventory management's the key. You know, a lot of people are worried about Amazon and the fact that they see it as a big risk profile because, you know, Amazon can change the rules at any given time. Google can change the rules. Facebook can change the rules. And by changing the rules, I mean they can tweak their algorithm. When you tweak an algorithm, 
you can impact significantly what is the revenue source for a company. And so that is a concern. But in reality, a good company going through that kind of a change is probably actually going to be benefited from it. It's the bad companies doing black hat tactics that you really have to worry about. So we don't really take a lot of the bad deals, but that is one reason why a business can fail is someone hasn't done enough due diligence on the tactics being used by a seller. And when you're in the tech space, especially e-commerce, there are things that people do that are black hat in nature that you have to be aware of. Now, going into the gray zone is fine. And the majority of successful business owners have to do that in order to be successful. But you know, just flat out black hat tactics can be a pain point for a new buyer that comes in and now has to deal with the issues associated with it if they come up, the consequences. And so that's one. And, and like I said, inventory management is another one. And I will say a third one that I've seen out there is undercapitalization. You come in and you buy a company. And when you buy that company, you're probably going to use leverage. You're going to use debt. Well, you know, there's what I said before about ghost profit. You've got cash flow and earnings. You're buying the company on earnings, which is higher than cash flow for a high growth company because of you know all the investment you're making either in human capital for a SaaS company or the software associated with it for development or if it's an e-commerce company you're putting a lot of money into inventory and so that's a risk and if you're undercapitalized you could get into some serious trouble pretty quickly let's say that you've got i don't know $500,000 in earnings on the company in discretionary earnings on the company And all of a sudden, now when you buy the company, you've got $30,000 a month that you're paying to the bank. You know, if you just kind of break it out, you were planning on $80,000 a month, and now you're down to 50 because you've got 30,000 going to the bank. And then also you've got taxes, and the IRS taxes you on that ghost profit that we're talking about. You don't get to write down all of your inventory. You have to do it on an accrual method once you're a large enough company. You know, you've got that constraint. And we help our clients through that process so that they're fully aware of it. And that's why we don't have failures. But one thing I've seen out there with some other brokers is that they don't break that down for their clients. They don't talk about the tax ramifications, the cash flow differences of, of cash flow and profit. They don't break all those things down. They're not putting them in a position to be successful. And you can definitely have a failure there. Okay. So another aspect of that, and that kind of ties into what you were just saying is, for example, when a company buys or merges with another company and then has to deal with potential issues from the seller, from the previous owner, I think the term would be indemnity. For example, I've seen a lot in the tech space. It's not uncommon for a a company to discover a data breach after the company's traded hands. So what kind of uh, risk protections are there for the sellers as well as the buyers? You know, once we get to the legal stage of this process, you know, the lawyers are going to work out reps and warranties for the deal. In addition to the reps and warranties, which are, you know, those representations and warranties a seller is making to a buyer that need to be truthful. And as long as they are truthful, there won't be any issues. If they're not truthful, then that could potentially be a problem. One of the ways the parties will help with that is that they'll put what's called a holdback in place or an escrow in place. And that will be held back for a period of time, maybe six months, so that as they go through the closing process and the buyer begins to take control of the business, they want to make sure all the things that the seller said are true are true. 
If not, then there's you know a series of things that can happen with those escrow funds so that the deal is changed a little bit after closing. So I think that's one way. But yeah, I mean, you know, anything that happens prior to close is pretty much on the hands of the seller. Anything that happens after close, you know, it's up to the buyer at that point. And one of the things we're seeing, you know, because of the Wayfair decision at the Supreme Court in the e-commerce space is dealing with sales tax. You know, that's a very big sort of broad unknown happening right now for all people in e-commerce. And, you know, there's people talking about legislation that's going forth right now to try to get the mom and pops some coverage there because, you know, trying to deal with all the municipalities and the jurisdictions out there associated with tax can be, you know, very, very painful, but the states want their money. And so there's, there's a lot of change going on right now. And that can be impactful as it relates to indemnification because, you know, if you've got a tax liability, you're still going to have that tax liability whether you sell or not. We advise our clients that if they feel like that's something that's going to be there to put some money in reserve, one way or the other, put money in reserve to deal with that after the fact. But that won't be on the buyer. You know, the buyer, you know, takes control on the closing day. And if, you know, they're going to have different tax nexus as it relates to the seller. But across the board, whether they've had issues in the past, they've had legal issues, you know, no matter what the issues are, they're supposed to be disclosed in the disclosure statements of the contract and the buyer is going to be reading those and assuming that that's all of the issues that the company has and so that they're fully aware. If other things pop up, of course, you know, you can get into some trouble and potentially lawsuits because everything wasn't disclosed. Reasons that we are so successful at what we do is we have created a great team of independents. And those are lending partners, uh, due diligence experts, and in this case, as we're discussing, attorneys. We have a series of attorneys that we're able to um, recommend to the various clients that specialize specifically in the digital sector. So it really evens the playing field for you know the people that are participating in these deals, which is really helpful. Now understand also that the stakes on this are rising at a really rapid pace. A lot of the deals that Jason and I work on now are pushing well into the eight figures. You know, obviously in a case like that, these guys have attorneys on staff and they also know their stuff really well because they own multiple companies in this sector, which has enabled them to be able to grow as fast and be able to purchase those eight-figure companies. Do you have suggestions for uh, communication practices to the stakeholders when a company is going through a sale or merger? And by stakeholders, do you mean the employees or all of the shareholders of the company? Whichever would be most relevant, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'll tackle both. I mean, you know, as it relates to the shareholders of the company, and there can be a lot of shareholders given the particular company, you know, everybody sort of needs to be on board there. And I'm talking private side, not public company right now. On the private company, everyone needs to be on board that you're closing. And, and, you know, sometimes we see issues where partners are maybe husband and wife, they're getting a divorce, or partners have gotten into a place where they just can't stand each other. And all they do is fight. And now they want to try to sell a company and one of them wants to and one of them doesn't. And so we see all of those things and, you know, kind of have to walk people through it. But from a notification standpoint, all parties that are owners of a company need to be involved and agree that, you know, we are going to sell this company. On the employee side, that's the last thing you want to do is start telling your employees you're selling the company. And the reason for that is that, you know, those employees aren't going to have the context necessary to understand they're going to be safe after closing. The reality is that, you know, a good buyer and most 
most buyers do not come in and, and change anything. In fact, they're usually going to add to the staff rather than you know reduce it. And that's in the sub one hundred million dollar deals. When you get into you know the nine figure deals, then you know yeah, you can have some reduction in workforce because likely that's more going to be a merger of companies together. In this case, you know, while yes, we certainly see mergers, it's more of the acquisition side. And in that case, you know, they're not looking to reduce staff at all. But that being said, the last thing you want to do is let them know that you're thinking about selling. And so, you know, all of these calls that we have with all of our clients are done, you know, on the down low. And uh, we have to also be very careful out in the marketplace that we're not, you know, letting people know that this business is for sale. And so we do things in a highly confidential manner. Everyone signs a non-disclosure agreement with us for the particular deal that they're looking at. You know, we take great care to make sure that those employees aren't going to find out because they'll leave or they'll stop performing at the level that they have, which is impactful. You know, the, the human capital of your business is your business. If it starts failing on you, your whole business can start cratering. And that's not good for the M&A process or for your business. And so, you know, they do not get notified usually either after closing or maybe the day before closing just for introductions to the new buyer. The vast majority of times that I've seen this and the times that I've done it as a buyer have not been an issue. You know, the employees are great, you know, they're supportive and you kind of go through the process, but telling them way ahead of time certainly is, is not helpful. Okay. Yeah. That actually kind of played into my next question, which was just what sort of impact on a, a company's culture have you seen play out? when a company is sold or merged? Well, you know, I think it varies. You know, we were just on a call the other day with a, a doctor who's got a company that may be coming on board with us. We're really excited to, to represent this, this individual. And part of the business is her name. And she wisely is concerned about, you know, where this business might go in the future and who might control parts of her name because you can't really change the business. It is her. We've seen that in other brands out there, like Kate Spade is an example, and there's a lot of others where the name of the person sort of is the brand, and you know how is that dealt with? And so you know that's another thing that you kind of have to think about up front as you're going through, like who is this buyer going to be, and are they going to do the right things by my brand? Are they going to do things that I'll be happy with because now they control? And that can all be papered into an operating agreement so that when people are working together, you know, after close, they're all thinking about that. But then the next question is, well, what if that business is sold again to someone else and then sold again after that? And, you know, what are the covenants that are going to be in place to deal with this brand that's been created? Sometimes they change hands, you know, five, six, seven times. And you kind of got to be thinking about that. One other thing, too, on the buyer-seller relationship is... When it comes to a lot of these purchases, especially the ones over 10 million, and particularly when you start getting 25 million and up, the sellers will ask that question, you know, like, who exactly is buying my company and what can I expect afterwards? In a lot of cases, there is an equity role, which means that the seller does maintain a certain amount of the shares post-close. But a lot of these people buying the companies are extremely bright, extremely dynamic. They've created wealth. They've built companies that are either large now or they were large when they sold them and they're starting over again. And a lot of times the seller has a lot to gain in this relationship because they have a specific skill set. Well, the buyer has a very different skill set. And between the two of them, you know, they kind of feed off each other and they can learn basically the things that they're not experts at and become even better at what they do. So there can be a pretty major win on the seller side in these transactions as well. Okay, so we have an idea of what goes into these kinds of deals. Think of a brand 
Maybe it's been popping up in your Instagram or Facebook feeds lately. You click on their ad, it takes you to their page, and you like what you see. You decide to make a purchase. Keep in mind this can be any kind of brand. Maybe it's a new trendy diet smoothie subscription service or a sneaker brand you've been wanting to try. Imagine this brand has millions of followers. Their business is booming and the owner decides to sell. What happens next? Jason and Ron gave me a similar example. Of course, for privacy purposes, they didn't tell me who the client was, but imagine it's the brand you were just thinking of. One that we recently did, and again, I can't speak details of it, but it was an apparel company that was driven by social media. Really exciting company, mostly because it was driven by social media and wasn't only focused on the Amazon platform. They were doing really well with influencers on Instagram. A lot of their traffic was organic, and they were growing healthily over time. We originally went to market with that business, I think around 40 million, somewhere in that vicinity. We found a buyer for that deal. That buyer ended up buying another company for 200 million in the middle of diligence on this business. And so they had to pull out, but then we ended up negotiating a deal after the fact, after they pulled out for a growth investment in the company. And and that's sort of how they moved forward was through a growth investment. And so what was going to be a $40 million deal ended up being, I think, closer to a $10 million deal. And in any event, you know, that company that put that growth investment into that company now is they're, they're really, really doing well. And that sort of meshing of companies together is what causes these behemoths to grow so fast. And what we had on the buyer side was someone who controls well over 100 brands, or maybe not just controls, but has investments in over 100 brands and has lots and lots of experience uh, in the space. And that experience is great because if you're trying to take a product to retail or if you're trying to maybe go international with a product or you're trying to get into adjacent verticals for your brand that would make sense for your brand, you know, having somebody on your board as an investor that's done that in the past or has the network of people that have done that in the past, that's highly valuable. That's, those are things that other people just don't have. And that's how you get to the sort of next step. And that's what we are at our firm. I think a lot of what we work on are businesses that are about to get to that next step. You know, especially Ron and I, we tend to focus on the 20 to $100 million deals. And for those, these are guys that have really done well, but they don't know how to get to $200 million or $300 million. Or if they're $20 million, they don't know how to get to $50 million. They'll just tell you that, look, I'm ready for some adult supervision here. You know, I've done very well. I'm very proud of what I've done. But I need somebody to come in here and help me do well with this. I don't want to just leave. I don't want to take the keys and hand them off. I want to actually progress this forward. And I know that by combining, I can do that. And plus, they get to take chips off the table. And the interesting thing about that is that, you know, usually in a a scenario like that, let's call it a $30 million deal, moving away from the growth investment I was talking about and back into a normal deal for us. You know, if it's a $30 million deal and somebody, you know, sells 70% of their company and they keep 30%, that $30 million deal may become a $100 million deal one day, pretty easily with a good buyer where they can take that and grow it up to $100 million. Well, 30% of $100 million is $30 million. And the 70% was $20 million, $21 million. So they actually, on the second exit with less equity, made more money, far more money than they did on the initial exit. And so you get kind of two bites at the apple when you do that. And we've got a lot of clients that that's what they're looking for. They want to take chips off the table now. They want to keep equity. They want to stay in the company. They want to help it grow. And they want to see that exit another three to five years down the road. And they do know just the common sense says that the future is bright. 
All right, Jason and Ron, thank you again for uh, taking the time to talk to me today about mergers and acquisitions in the tech and internet space. Yeah, thank you, Randy. We're really excited for this podcast. We think that you know we can add a lot of value for people out there that are looking to potentially sell one day. And not just those that are ready to sell now, but those that might be looking forward to it. Even those that are in startup phase at the moment and you know they've got a two-year plan, they'd like to sell in two years. We have a lot of those you know, kinds of clients. I think listening to this podcast will help give them context and things to think about for the future and how they're going to build their company. And certainly, you know, when Ron and I present out there, that's a lot of what we focus on is how to sort of get your company to the point of exit. If you can do that well, if you can start checking all the boxes early on and really build this company to uh, the kind of company that does check all those boxes, you're going to get a bigger valuation. There's going to be a bigger buyer pool and you're going to end up much happier in the end. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast is just really as kind of an educational tool. And what we're also hoping is that, you know, over time, people will email us and ask us questions to ask on the podcast. Because, you know, when we do our presentations, the most valuable part of those presentations is the Socratic method, that sort of Q&A that we get from the people in the, in the audience. And so, you know, I would invite anybody that is a listener of this podcast to please send in questions for us to talk about. We're happy to read them aloud and, and start having those conversations here. Potentially, we can start bringing on some guests as well that are people that have questions that would like to do the interview style with them. Not just the people that we're presenting, like we're going to bring private equity groups and a lot of banks, people connected to banks and that are in the SBA process. We're going to bring some buyers and some sellers that have some experience with this. But I'd also love to have audience members that haven't yet gotten into M&A or dealt with it yet that just have questions and we can bring them on board so that they can ask the questions that will help them grow their company. Thanks again to Jason and Ron for taking the time to talk to me. As Jason said, feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions. We'd be happy to explore the answers. Till next time, this has been Deal Closers. Deal Closers.